Well, boys and girls, the podcast exploding. Bob and me are back for another episode. Uh, things are just hopping off. I got an email uh, asking me if I could read an advertisement. And they'll pay me for this. Boys and girls, the podcast is making it, so uh, uh, let's run this ad. Bob, give me the copy, please. All right, Bob's pulling it up for me here. Give me a second. Bob, Bob. Hey, thanks. Okay, thanks. All right. Uh, wait, seriously, Bob, this is the ad? Really? Okay. All right. So new sponsor today. Dear Primary Care Pro Pod listeners, do you want to increase your revenue? Up those 99213s into 99214s? Add some risk score bonuses to your RAF scores for ACO metrics? Introducing the new technique to make your patients gain tremendous amounts of weight. Add obesity modifiers to your patient list and increase complexity of your patients by adding diabetes to every other patient on your schedule. This 100% expert proven way to do that is through our good friends at the Sugar Corporation. They provide easy access to delicious white powder gold. Patients under schedule too easy? Too little complications to upcode? Well, then just get them all in a high diet of fructose corn syrup, agave nectar, natural molasses flavoring, or dehydrated cane juice today. Just remember, if you want to be a sugar daddy, you're going to need those patients on a high diet of sugar. P.S. Those are all real marketing techniques to avoid uh, labels with sugar. Um, my favorite is by far the dehydrated cane juice. That's a real... Uh, it's a real marketing ploy. So uh, anyways, if you have any real comments, feedbacks, questions, concerns, uh, uh, marketing opportunities, uh, email us at uh, email me and Bob here at uh, primarycarepod at gmail.com, and we'll get you back to you on the email. Uh, thanks so much, and uh, let's start the podcast. Hit it up, Bob. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast for use of my own time solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Uh, so, Bob, thanks for that intro music. Uh, real banger today. Real appreciate that. Okay, so uh, let's talk about something that was released yesterday in the Journal of American Medicine, uh, GAMA uh, Pediatrics. Uh, and this, I thought I want to do a midweek uh, podcast uh, simply because this is practice changing for me. And that is, uh, the article is, The Efficacy, Safety, and Acceptability of Pharmacologic Treatments for Pediatric Migraine Prophylaxis, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis. Um, so when we look at here, the question is, uh, the question they were trying to answer in this meta-analysis was, what are the most effective, safe, and accepted pharmacological treatments for migraine prophylaxis in children and adolescents? Okay. So they looked at a bunch of studies. That was my keys dropping on the ground. Wow, that's embarrassing. Um, so a, a couple of backgrounds. Uh, migraines in kids are not super common. Uh, below the age of uh, seven years old or before the age of, uh, you know, in, in very young children, the incidence is only about 3%. Um, when you get to kids in uh, teenage years, 11 to 15, uh, where the range is about 8 to 23% that kids have had migraine headaches before. Um, before puberty, boys are more common than girls. After 11, girls are a lot more common. Now, when we talk about treatment options, first-line treatment is early treatment of the headache with nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories. Okay, uh, triptans often considered. Um, now, interestingly, we're going to get into some of the the actual data behind why we treat this, and then 
And when we talk about kids who have frequent headaches, we talk about uh, doing prophylactic medicines. Now, don't get me wrong, there's all kind of lifestyle interventions. There's um, lots of things people talk about, not only tracking headaches to look for triggers. When we talk about pediatric migraines, we can't stress the importance of sleep hygiene um, and regular sleep, avoiding insomnia, frequent awakenings, etc. The importance of regular exercise, the importance of hydration, the importance of routine meal scheduling to avoid hypoglycemia. Um, that there is evidence that meal skipping and fasting can trigger migraines. Um, and then, of course, talking about managing migraine triggers. And that can be stress, that can be, again, meals, food, uh, hunger, uh, lack of good water intake, um, talking about uh, putting the, the, the child, you know, to, to avoid having to stress their eyes, so sit in the front of the classrooms with teachers. Migraines occur more frequently during the school year, obviously. Um, and then summertime, I think we've all seen that in our own pediatric patients. And caffeine withdrawal can also be a participant of migraines. So all those things are important for pediatric migraines and adolescent migraines. Um, I'm going to say the word pediatric migraines, even though I'm talking about teenagers, you know, obviously uh, adolescent migraines are more common. But we're going to look at specifically um, this study in JAMA that showed that not surprising, well, surprising to me, that there is absolutely no evidence for any medications for prophylactic migraine treatment. And to me, that's a big deal because when you look at these kids, especially the kids that get multiple headaches um, per week, kids that are struggling with their headaches, you know, we've used, or at least in my practice, abortives all the time and non-steroidals, even triptans in some kids. And I, I've always just done this because this is what I was taught in residency. And I've never actually read a single study before on migraine treatment in kids. I've never actually read a single study. This was more of like, I learned to do this because I watched pediatric neurologists do this. I watched pediatricians do this. I watched family doctors do this. Uh, my FP rotations, um, this is what we did for kids who struggled. And we treated them, especially like, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. We treated them like many adults. Um, but I've never, actually, I've never actually seen a study on this. So this was very eye-opening to me reading these studies. So let's dive into it. So the meta-analysis was on 23 different studies, including 2,217 patients. Now, they, uh, the studies were all based on prophylactic pharmacological treatments, and there was a wide range. Um, so they put in the, in the study, uh, in the article, they talk about antiepileptics, antidepressants, calcium channel blockers, antihypertensives, and also supplements. Um, let me read you a list of some of them. Uh, just so you know what you're talking about. Uh, propranolol, uh, pregabalin, uh, topiramate, uh, Depakote, flunarizine. I'm a doctor and I know that word. Actually, I've never heard of that. Um, I've never heard of that one. Uh, a calcium channel blocker, um, nimodipine, uh, riboflavin, butterbur, coenzyme Q, amitriptyline, melatonin, sinazarine, which is a, a antihistamine, um, so yeah, so we have a lot of these uh, normal things that we use in migraine prophylaxis represented here. Maybe not all of them. And interestingly, the one that um, I've always heard of that you could try would be uh, ciproheptidine, which is an antihistamine um, for prophylaxis. Um, but uh, that's the only one that I've that I've seen used that was not represented. Obviously, we have topiramate in there. Uh, topiramate, sorry, topamax. We have uh, amitriptyline represented. We have propranolol represented. We have riboflavin. So we've got. We've got a pretty good list uh, up to date on there, a uh, pretty good list uh, of potential prophylaxis in this meta-analysis. And basically, the meta-analysis shows uh, nothing, 
nothing, no benefit. Um, and I think this was really interesting to me because we see some benefit in adults, that there, that there is some benefit. What I find really even more interesting is when you actually go look at the studies for um, all of these things, and including um, a board of medicines, so board of and prophylactic medicines, in adolescent population, pediatric populations, there's a huge, huge placebo effect. Uh, I did not realize this. I'm just going to pull one of the studies in the meta-analysis. Um, and this is actually, they talked about, um, this is uh, one of the things they mentioned in the meta-analysis was how, um, how good placebos are for even abortive therapies. So uh, for one, this is a uh, journal, this is JAMA Pediatrics in 2013. Now, uh, this, this was an old study, but it looked at um, sumatriptan, uh, another triptan, uh, zolmatriptan, and also elatriptan, uh, almotriptan, and rizotriptan. Uh, tablets. And so this was a uh, meta-analysis as well and looked at all of the studies using triptans in kids, randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trials. And what I think is crazy, in all the trials, placebo was 57, 53% to 57% effective. That's crazy. That's crazy. 53 to 57% placebo effect for headache treatment for pediatric and adolescent migraineurs. That's amazing. So, I, I, again, this gets back to the idea of uh, nihilistic medicine, doing less is more. Uh, give them anything for migraines, and they do better. So, uh, you know, we, we, we laugh about social media. We laugh about mid-level marketers and um, these people who are, like, you know, using all these all natural things that are basically just perfume, in, in essence, you know, essential oils to, to fix migraines. Hey, guess what, kids? Uh, you're not wrong. Uh, you know, if your kid responds to these things 57% of the time, it turns out, yeah, same thing if they took a sugar pill. So, uh, and, and this this goes on and on and on with these uh, prophylactic meds as well, that there's just no statistical benefit. So one of the comments that I really wanted to mention on here that I thought was really telling. And I, I, by the way, I, I was notified by this study from, from Journal Watch. And uh, I want to pull up the Journal Watch article here real quick. Hey, Bob, can you give me that J-Watch article, Bob? Okay. Okay. I'll wait for it. Okay. So the J-Watch article talks about how um, propranolol and topiramate in the first six months uh, show that they are effective compared to placebo, but their 95% confidence interval crosses the, uh, or is non-significant. So yeah, I mean, it crosses the um, the one mark when it comes to relative risk reduction. So there's no statistical evidence to say that they are actually okay. And then when you get past six months, there's no benefit to long-term treatment. So I didn't even, I mean, basically those are null, those are null studies. You can spend it all you want, but basically null studies. So uh, an editorialist in JAMA Pediatrics says, reconsider recommendations and rewrite your guidelines. Uh, that's what the, uh, that's <laughs> what the take-home point of the study is to the uh, pediatric neurologists. And to pediatric clinicians, uh, the editorialist says, do not use pharmacological prophylactic treatment regularly in your daily practice because the placebo effect is heightened in children and the proof of true pharmacological association is weak. Use non-pharmacological approaches. And I think that's the take-home. There's just not a lot of benefit. And this is going to change my practice because I'm just going to recommend continuing non-pharmacological treatments and that the pills are not any better compared to the um, placebo and that the side effects are real and definitely prevalent.
prevalent and uh, just give them regular things and don't treat prophylactically because it doesn't really make a difference. So this is actually going to change my pro- my practice because um, I do practice um, giving prophylactic medications to uh, a couple of my uh, adolescent migraineurs. So uh, this will make a difference for me. All right. So that was only uh, 10 minutes. So instead of uh, wrapping up early, I'm going to add a couple more quick studies. Um, I mean, Annals of Rheumatology says uh, naproxen and colchicine equally effective for gout. So FYI for all you gout fans. I also like prednisone a lot. Uh, prednisone has a lot more side effects, especially systemically, and there's association with prednisone with a whole lot of negative things. So especially if your patients are having frequent gout attacks, naproxen and colchicine equally effective at treating gout attacks. Journal of American College of Cardiology also says, uh, you know, we talked about PSK9s uh, and cardiovascular risk in the past and how they, while super-duper crazy expensive, are seemingly pretty good drugs. Um, we also mentioned that there are additional targets coming for lipoprotein A to help reduce cardiovascular risk. Well, it turns out PSK9s also might lower lipoprotein A. So added benefit. Again, um, more to come on lipoprotein A. I think I mentioned in one of the last ones. But again, uh, positive benefits. Lowering lipoprotein A probably helps reduce risk for coronary artery disease. That's good. Finally, today we'll wrap up with one of my favorite topics, how bad the popular media is at uh, looking at medical journals. Uh, I got this in my inbox. Uh, uh, I got this in my inbox. It was a medical story. It, w- it said the, high, the um, title here is doing this many push-ups reduces heart disease risk by 96%. Now, I always just instantly delete these, but again, I'm a sucker for clickbait headlines, so I clicked on it, of course, and that's why they do these clickbait headlines. Um, And it says, I want to read you the article. I'm not going to say who wrote this uh, because it's stupid garbage. Um, About 250,000 Americans die each year as a direct result for sedentary lifestyles. A larger share of these deaths is attributed to the development of cardiovascular disease. Nothing wrong on here. Nothing wrong in here. Uh, Next paragraph. Thankfully, a study published in JAMA Network Open recently became the first to identify push-up capacity as a preemptive correlate of poor heart health. And they talk about how you need to do 40 push-ups, have a 96% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular events. Now, Number one is that I read this article on February 20, February 10th, 2020, okay? The recently published study saying that 40 push-up, push-ups is the magic number happened a full year ago in February 15th of 2019. And if you look at this, the key take-home isn't you need to do 40 push-ups to reduce your risk of developing heart attack or stroke by 96%. The entire purpose of this article and there's a beautiful figure here in the studies in uh, JAMA Open Network uh, uh, Journal, and it says association between push-up exercise capacity and future cardiovascular events among active adult men. It looks at men over the course of 10 years. And the big difference is it talks about looking at men who have a baseline push-up capacity and looking at the 10-year predictive capacity of uh, uh, oxygen consumption, maximum oxygen consumption, uh, exercise capacity, and then push-ups. And the push-up graph is pretty amazing, and the supplemental figures and tables tables is pretty amazing. But there's a key here, and that isn't that it's 40 push-ups, isn't that there's some magic number. It's just there's a huge difference between not exercising and doing literally anything. And, you know, I've talked about this on this podcast before. You don't have to stress to your patients. They don't have to be, you can stress to them. They don't have to be marathon runners. They don't have to be uh, 5K runners. They don't have to train for a half marathon. They literally just need to do something on a weekly basis. And it reduces the risk for heart attack and stroke dramatically compared to being completely sedentary. And 
I hypothesize that this is why in America we have such terrible cardiovascular outcomes and obesity and all these other issues compared to a lot of other first world countries and socialized medicine countries is just because they have actual some some form of exercise on a weekly basis, right? And we have so many people who go from couch, bed to couch, to car, to desk, to car, to couch, to bed. And that's their life. And maybe throw in there sitting your uh, tail end on a bleacher at some point or doing something. But this is just proof. You know, they talk about in this article, like, well, you have to do 40 push-ups. The guys who did 10 push-ups, who were able to do 10 to 20 push-ups, had a huge decrease. And again, absolute risk reduction here is like 15% for the people with, you know, doing 40 push-ups, absolute risk reduction, 96% relative risk reduction. But even for guys that were doing like uh, 10 push-ups, 10 to 20 push-ups, that's, you know, almost nothing. They had like a 10% absolute risk reduction in mortality over the course of 10 years in cardiovascular disease and death and major cardiovascular events. So, I mean, we're not even talking like being a marathon or being an exercise guru. We're just talking about people who can literally do any exercise and have any exercise capacity. So again, when you're preaching to patients, you don't have to preach that they have to be, you know, doing two and a half hours a week of exercise, just literally do anything from the couch up to that amount and they'll be good. So that's all I got for this week. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the uh, lesson on uh, pediatric migraine medications. I know it's going to change my practice. Maybe it will change yours. Again, focus on um, the fact that we can use a lot less invasive things and um, non-pharmacological ways to, to manage migraines and you know, use the easy stuff. NSAIDs. Uh, don't go crazy. They don't work any better than anything else because placebo rates are so high. So uh, this has been Dr. Marklist uh, signing out. Uh, Bob, Bob, you don't say anything? Nope. Bob, good. Bob says we're done for the night. Uh, so we'll, we'll sign off today saying you don't have to stay up all night. Stay up to date. Uh, thanks and have a great day.